This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Management of Cancer Pain in Primary Care. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Cancer is so incredibly common. In fact, the American Cancer Society reports that one in two men and one in three women will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. Most of the attention seems to be focused on treating the cancer itself. But in addition to treating cancer, it's also very important to treat cancer pain. Cancer pain can have a huge impact on a patient's quality of life. 45 years ago in 1979, the International Association for the Study of Pain defined pain as the unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Cancer pain can be caused by tumor growth compressing on nerves, bones, or organs. During the treatment, pain can be a side effect of the medications they're using or even direct tissue damage from surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation. Just over half of cancer patients report pain. And during that active treatment phase, that pain is typically managed by the patient's cancer specialists or palliative care medicine. Fortunately, due to advancements in both cancer detection and treatment, cancer mortality has been sharply declining. So now we are seeing more and more patients reach remission. Many cancer survivors, though, continue to struggle with pain, either related to their cancer or to their treatments. Often these patients may no longer need to see their cancer specialists and are returned to primary care. What's an appropriate strategy to treat these patients' lingering pain, especially in the midst of our ongoing opioid epidemic? Coming up next week on Sunday, February the 4th is World Cancer Day. 
In honor of this, today we will be discussing the important topic of cancer pain. For this topic, I've invited two of Ohio State University's palliative care experts. First, I have Associate Professor of Internal Medicine, Dr. Sachin Kale. Satch is the Director of Ambulatory Palliative Care at Ohio State University James Cancer Hospital. And I'm also delighted to introduce Maureen Sapphire, who is a doctor of pharmacy and a special practice pharmacist in palliative medicine at the James Cancer Hospital and heads up opioid stewardship. Today, their presentation will focus on pain management in cancer survivors. Satch, Maureen, welcome to MedNet. Thank you. Thanks. Now, Satch, um, palliative care, I think, often is associated probably erroneously as a service treating terminal patients only. Do you guys often treat cancer survivors? Thank you, that's a great question. So palliative care is not restricted based on prognosis. For patients with cancer, palliative care is appropriate based on need. Mm -hmm. And we'll see patients even earlier in their cancer. When patients enter long-term survivorship, we often look to collaborate with primary care providers or chronic pain management programs to help with any lingering chronic pain. Perfect, and Maureen, how can clinicians best collaborate with their pharmacy colleagues in treating pain? That's a great question. So there are lots of ways to collaborate with your pharmacist colleagues, including pharmacists in the community settings who are dispensing the medications. They can check ORs, do MTM reviews, and help alert to any necessary drug-drug interactions to bring up to the provider as well as using specialty trained pharmacists in pain management and palliative care, such as in the clinic setting that I work in at Ohio State, um, we are able to help the providers real time with drug information questions, with helping them select medications to use for optimal pain management, reviewing urine drug screens, and even under a collaborative practice agreement, we're able to adjust therapies um, and see and help our patients with their plans of care. Perfect, and then for um, our out of state um, viewers, the ORS is the um, uh, database showing controlled substance prescribing in the state, correct? Correct. That is the prescription drug monitoring program. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there, such as the Cancer Survivorship Program, which covers many other aspects of cancer survivorship mm -hmm. care. Today's topic can also be used to satisfy the new DEA requirements for prescribers applying for or renewing their DEA licenses as of June 2023 or later to complete their eight hours of training on the treatment and management of patients with opioid or other substance use disorder. Check out our website. We've got lots more programs that are um, on deck and have already been recorded that you can use for that requirement too. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet21 on our podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Satch? Great, thank you. So our talk is about the management of cancer pain in primary care. We have no financial disclosures. There will be some off-label use of medications that will be discussed in this presentation. So at the end of this talk, we hope to leave you with the ability to describe a comprehensive approach to assessing and managing pain in cancer survivors, and also to discuss a universal precautions approach for opioid prescribing. We're gonna frame this discussion with two hypothetical cases, and we'll get back to these cases at the end of the talk. 
So the first case deals with the intersection of cancer-related pain and chronic pain. Imagine a 68-year-old woman with stage 2 breast cancer, status post bilateral mastectomy, chemotherapy, now on surveillance, but with ongoing pain from surgery and lymphedema. Imagine she has a history of chronic low back pain as well, and she's on maximum doses of celecoxib and pregabalin. And she was recently told by her oncology office that since they're not following with her as often anymore, they'll no longer be able to prescribe opioids. She has an intolerance to other non-opioid adjuvants. And she notes that all her pain has been pretty well controlled on a buprenorphine transdermal patch. And she wasn't even able to participate with physical therapy or occupational therapy prior to being on this medication. If you don't know what a buprenorphine transdermal patch is, have no fears, we'll talk about it today. You talk, um, so you talk to your, her oncologist and you're able to confirm her cancer history and the appropriate use of opioids. Let's think about another case. This is a patient with a little bit longer term um, cancer survivorship. A 45-year-old man with a history of stage 4 head and neck cancer received surgery followed by a chemo radiation. There's been no evidence of cancer recurrence for the past 14 months. He has persistent pain in his neck and throat following cancer treatment, which has improved somewhat over time. He currently moved to your area. He's been receiving 15 milligrams of oxycodone, three tablets per day, and morphine extended release, 15 milligrams every 12 hours. His pain is very well controlled. You are able to confirm his cancer history, appropriate opioid use with his oncologist, and that his opioid dose has not been reduced in over a year. Would you feel comfortable taking over his opioid prescribing? Would you consider tapering his dose? Both these cases highlight a situation that blurs the distinguish, this distinction, distinction between cancer pain and chronic pain. The pain for the, both these patients is now chronic, but they may have generated from cancer-related etiologies, perhaps direct tumor involvement of the bone, nerves, viscera, soft tissue, tissue damage from cancer treatment itself, such as surgery or radiation, or potentially long-lasting side effects from cancer treatment, such as peripheral neuropathy. More and more studies have really better understood the prevalence of pain in long-term cancer survivors. This recent study of the National Health Survey of Adult Cancer Survivors found that 16.1% had what was considered high-impact chronic pain, which included high levels of pain plus a major activity restriction. 34.6% reported chronic pain. And there's found to be a higher prevalence of pain reported in cancer survivors with less than a high school education, low household income, or on public insurance. Survivors of bone, kidney, and throat pharynx cancers had the highest prevalence of pain. This study looked at the experience of cancer survivors who have chronic pain. They interviewed a group of cancer survivors and three themes emerged from this qualitative study. Cancer survivors described the invisible suffering at the cost of survival. They described gratitude for being alive, but struggling with limitations and symptoms post-cancer treatment. They also discussed an, what they called an opioid paradox. There was opioids freely given during cancer treatment, but once cancer treatment stopped, they perceived an urgency by clinicians to stop opioids once the treatment was finished, 
even if the pain continued. For those who continued on opioids, they felt a stigma for, for feeling they needed opioids despite their chronic pain. And there was a lack of answers on what to expect in survivorship and what might reduce pain. It was also unclear to them who was to help manage them with any long-lasting pain. How do clinicians feel about this? So a qualitative study interviewed 17 clinicians about their experiences managing chronic pain in cancer survivors. For the most part, they did not feel that many of their patients had, many of their cancer, uh, long-term cancer survivors had chronic pain. But for the patients who did have chronic pain, they, they identified some challenges, such as uncertainty about who is best positioned to manage chronic pain in this population, the complexities with long-term opioid management regarding state regulations, federal regulations, and management of psychosocial stressors that many of the patients may have, including difficulty accessing mental or behavioral health services for cancer survivors. So now that we've set the stage for what patients may experience um, when they have chronic pain after long-term survivorship and what clinicians may experience, let's talk about pain management. So the key aspects of pain management in this population Transitioning to long-term survivorship affects several aspects of pain management, including the goals of therapy, how pain is assessed, as well as therapeutic and treatment options, some of which may not have been available during cancer treatment, but now may be available to patients. When we think about the goals of therapy, in addition to pain relief, there is an added emphasis on approved functionality. Patients may continue to experience pain, but can we help them do more things now? There's an emphasis on wellness and an emphasis on limiting the long-term adverse um, events or side effects of medications they may be on, that they may have been put on during their cancer treatment, such as opioids. When we think about pain assessment, especially for new or acute pain, the differential diagnosis in cancer survivors needs to include concerns about disease recurrence, a secondary malignancy, or late onset treatment effects. When thinking about chronic pain, specific cancer pain syndromes should be identified if possible, because this can give um, ideas on how to treat that pain. An emphasis on non-opioid and non-pharmacologic options to treat the chronic pain and a decision, ideally a shared decision, about management of ongoing opioid therapy. And for any pain assessment, I'm recognizing the red flags. Neurologic deficits, rapidly increasing pain, pain without a clear etiology, and signs of cancer recurrence. I want to take a minute talking about severity of pain. Pain is a subjective experience. Numeric scores are helpful in tracking a patient's experience, but they shouldn't be used solely. Especially with chronic pain, functional status is equally important. How has pain interfered with activities of daily living? The PEG scale, which stands for pain, enjoyment of life, and general activity, can be an easy, quick way to, to monitor this. It includes a numeric pain score, but it also asks questions about how pain has interfered with the enjoyment of life, and how pain has interfered with general activity. Again, it's possible to have patients experience the same level of pain, but work with them to improve their general enjoyment of life and their activity. 
This brings up the concept of total pain. This is something in palliative care we think a lot about, and we realize there's many aspects to how patients experience pain. This, this concept was brought forth by Dame Cicely Saunders, um, who was the founder of the modern hospice movement. Total pain includes emotional components, such as depression and anxiety, as well as social components. Long-term cancer survivors may have strains in their relationships or a loss of independence post-cancer treatment. Of course, the physical components, such as nociceptive and neuropathic pain from cancer or its treatments, and spiritual, why is this happening? Why did I get cancer? Why am I not feeling better after cancer treatment? And existential distress. All these components can help um, when addressing them to help overall well-being for our patients. When we think about pain treatment options, non-pharmacologic options include behavioral, CBT, things like this, interventional options such as epidural steroid injections, neuromodulation techniques, and integrative approaches, as well as physical therapy. It's very important to remember that, especially in long-term cancer survivors, these patients may not have had the opportunity to benefit from these during their cancer treatment and may now be able to. And of course, there's also pharmacological options, such as non-opioid medications and opioids as well. The next two slides um, are for reference. It can be helpful to think about a syndrome-based approach for patients with chronic cancer-related pain. And you can talk with the patient's oncologist and to help think these through as well. So for example, a post-radical neck dissection syndrome, if diagnosed, mirror therapy, cognitive therapy, neuropathic adjuvants can help. Post-mastectomy or post-thoracotomy pain syndromes can benefit from intercostal nerve blocks, TENS units, neuropathic adjuvants. Lymphedema can help benefit from manual lymphatic drainage. Myofascial pain can benefit from trigger point injections, acupuncture, NSAIDs. Vertebral compression can benefit from vertebroplasty, weight-bearing physical therapy, muscle relaxants, bisphosphonates or NSAIDs. And neuropathic pain can benefit from pharmacologic non-opioid treatments to address neuropathy as well as physical therapy. And what this really gets to is that the pain management for patients with long-term cancer, sorry, long-term cancer survivors, is really an interdisciplinary approach. Some specialties that might be helpful to, for the primary care um, provider include physical medicine, rehabilitation, or physical therapy, psychological resources, interventional approaches, integrative approaches, and neurostimulatory approaches as well. I'm now going to hand it off to my colleague, Maureen, to talk about pharmaceutical options in management of pain. Maureen? Thank you, Satch. All right, I'm going to kick off the medication portion of our discussion today, focusing on some non-opioid analgesics that we can use in primary care for pain management in our cancer survivors. And I want to say up front that all of the non-opioid medications that I'm going to be discussing today are used off-label for cancer-related pain. Topical medications such as lidocaine and diclofenac can be helpful for patients that have localized pain. One of the nice things about topical medications is we limit systemic absorption and therefore we limit the side effects from systemic exposure to those drugs. 
Now, an example of where we have used this off-label in our cancer patients is if they have pain to a specific area from maybe a cord compression or from bony metastases. And I counsel patients that they have to use them routinely. Don't just try it once and then stop the medication if it's ineffective, but use it routinely to see some pain relief. Skeletal muscle relaxants in general don't carry a lot of evidence to support their efficacy in pain conditions, especially not beyond short-term use, which is just about two to four weeks of use. They do as a class cause CNS depression, and so it's important to take that, that into consideration, especially if patients are prescribed opioids as well or other CNS depressing medications. If you do decide to use skeletal muscle relaxants, we recommend using some of the less sedating agents like methocarbamol or metaxalone at the lowest effective doses. Cyclobenzaprine is one that I see prescribed um, quite frequently. And I just want to point out that that is structurally related to antidepressants. And so we have to consider the serotonin syndrome risk with the other serotonergic meds on the patient's profile. Lastly, some antispasticity agents like baclofen or tizanidine could be helpful for spasticity from CNS lesions. And if in primary care you have patients who are still using these therapies um, and they feel like they're no longer needed, do make sure that you taper those off to avoid any withdrawal effects. Next up, we have some other common non-opioid analgesics that we use often for pain management. NSAIDs and corticosteroids specifically can be helpful for pain related to inflammatory processes or tissue infiltration, bone metastases. With corticosteroids, though, we want to limit um, how long we're using those therapies. They're best used just acutely for burst therapies in order to limit adverse effects. If you're going to use NSAIDs chronically, we recommend using COX-2 selective, such as meloxicam or salicoxib, in order to limit GI injury risk. If your patients are using acetaminophen, we want to be mindful of their daily intake limits and counsel them to check OTC products like cough and cold medicines or sleep aids to make sure that they're staying under their daily acetaminophen intake limit. I also want to point out that all of the medications on this slide could potentially be contraindicated in patients undergoing certain cancer treatments. And so you may have patients that were using these therapies for other chronic pain conditions prior to their cancer treatment. And once they are through their treatments, you can evaluate if it's safe to restart these therapies for them. Next up, I wanna highlight some adjuvant analgesics for neuropathic pain. Adjuvants are medications that we primarily use for usually a different indication, but they may have some benefit for neuropathic pain as well. I've included the number needed to treat on these slides because I think it's kind of interesting and actually probably a little surprising for some of you um, to look at the number needed to treat. And that's actually for a broad array of neuropathic pain conditions, not, just, not, not necessarily cancer-related pain. But the tricyclic antidepressants are a class that I don't see prescribed quite as often, but they actually have the lowest number needed to treat when we're looking at um, neuropathic pain conditions. Um, one of the reasons we may not use these very often is they're known for their side effects. But if we choose secondary amines such as disipramine or nortriptyline, those cause less adverse effects as compared to their tertiary amine cousins like amitriptyline and imipramine. Target dosing for pain is lower than the dosing for mood, and so sometimes you may find benefit just with starting somebody on 25 milligrams at bedtime, titrating to 50 milligrams at bedtime and leaving it there, um, and, and they may have some benefit for, for their pain. 
With the selective serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, the SNRIs, um, duloxetine is our drug of choice for chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, even though it's not actually labeled for use in that indication. We do have weak to moderate evidence to support that that would be our, our drug of choice. With venlafaxine, I want to point out that the dosing for pain is actually much higher than the dosing for mood. And so that's kind of opposite um, what we talked about with the TCAs. And so you do need to titrate that medication um, in order to see benefit for pain. Usually patients need to take target doses for a few weeks before they will see um, the full benefit. Next up, we have gabapentin and pregabalin. I see these two medications prescribed a lot for neuropathic pain for various conditions. Um, but I think it's good to note that they do require titration to minimum effective doses, which I have listed on the slides there. What's interesting here is their number needed to treat is a lot higher than the antidepressants. But I think we reach for these agents because of the minimal drug-drug interactions, especially through the cytochrome P450 system, which is what we see a lot with the antidepressant class of medications. Do re remember, though, that they need adjusted for renal dysfunction, and we want to watch CNS depressing effects with those as well. And then lastly, there have been a lot of other anticonvulsants that have been studied as adjuvants for neuropathic pain. The most notable ones to mention here are carbamazepine and oxcarbazepine. I'm not going to go into detail, but they do come with a host of potential interactions and side effects. Um, and so there, there's some monitoring that's important to do with those. But those have been most beneficial for patients with trigeminal or glossopharyngeal neuralgias. So some of your head and neck cancer patients that could be dealing with that as a lingering effect from treatment, you could consider these agents. I want to point out that um, we have a clinical practice guideline available on OSU's clinical practice guideline website um, called Outpatient Non-Opioid Management of Chronic Pain. And that's something that you could look up and use. It's freely available for nonprofit individual use. All right, so now I'm going to move on to the opioids. So opioids we know are um, approved for use in cancer-related pain. We know that they're effective for patients who are going through cancer treatments. They have a quick onset of action, they're easily titratable, but there may be reasons that patients can't take other medications or participate in other therapies while they're going through cancer treatment. So we know that they're good for cancer pain, that's great, but what about patients who have entered survivorship, patients with stable or no active disease? We're kind of left on our own to figure out what to do with patients who are still taking their opioid medications after they've completed their, their treatments. There may be a lot of reasons why patients can't discontinue their opioids. Um, they may have developed um, a physical dependence and tolerance to them, which we know happens with chronic opioid use. They may not be able to discontinue the medication due to lingering pain. And then a small portion of them may have unfortunately developed a psychological dependence or even an addiction. We know that opioids um, potentiate the dopaminergic reward system. We know that they can make you feel good. And so there might be reasons why people are hesitant to come off of their opioids once they're through their cancer treatments. Let's look at some of our national guidelines that talk about opioid use and survivorship. So first up, I have the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO 2016, um, guideline on chronic pain in survivors. They really emphasize in this guideline using non-opioid therapies that we've talked about so far in this presentation and reserving a trial of opioids for very carefully selected cancer survivors who are having distress or functional impairment because of their chronic pain. 
The ASCO guidelines also recommend incorporating a universal precautions approach to prescribing to minimize abuse, addiction, and other harms related to opioids. The NCCN guidelines for survivorship in the pain section really say the same thing. So they recommend prescribing the lowest effective dose for the shortest period of time when opioids are appropriate and necessary. And again, with implementing precautions. So because our survivorship guidelines really focus on minimizing opioid use, that again kind of leaves us in that situation of what do we do when patients are still using high-dose opioids after their therapy or are requiring chronic opioid use, even if it's low-dose use, for their lingering pain conditions. In the midst of our nation's opioid crisis, lots of states implemented prescribing laws and rules to help curb excess opioid prescribing. You're probably familiar with the State Medical Board of Ohio and Ohio Administrative Code rules about prescribing opioids for pain. And in this case, I've included all of the things that you need to do as a prescriber when you're prescribing opioids for subacute and chronic pain. Now, there are some exceptions to these rules, some patient populations that are excluded. That would be patients receiving palliative care, hospice, or those with terminal conditions. So patients who have survived cancer are not considered terminal anymore, and so these rules absolutely do apply to them. There are a lot of steps to take into consideration here. I'm not gonna go through them, um, but I do wanna highlight on the next slide here the MED checkpoints that also come along with this subacute and chronic pain prescribing rules. MED stands for morphine equivalent dose. And so before prescribing 50 MED for your patients, you need to update your assessment and treatment plan obtain written informed consent, which really just reviews the risks and benefits of opioids and how to safely store them and dispose of them. And then it says to consider prescribing naloxone, consider a pharmacist MTM review, or consider referring to a specialist. And that would be a specialist who um, specializes in the area of the body that's affected by the pain condition, um, a pain medicine specialist, or if your patient has screened to to potentially be at risk for opioid misuse or abuse, referring to an addiction medicine specialist. Before you prescribe 80 MED, you must enter into a written pain treatment agreement. This is different from the informed consent in that it outlines more in detail some of the things that you want to do to mitigate risk with the patient, such as doing urine drug screening, maybe doing pill counts at their visits, um, outlining who can prescribe controlled substances for the patient. You must offer naloxone. The patient does not have to accept your prescription, but you can document that in your note. And you must obtain consultation from a specialist, as we mentioned above, or at least an MTM review with a pharmacist. And then according to this law, you should not prescribe above 120 MED unless you hold board certification in pain, hospice and palliative care, hematology or oncology, or you obtain written recommendation from one of those specialists from a face-to-face -face visit. So that was a lot to detail, and obviously it's very important to follow the prescribing rules and laws in your area. But let's kind of break this down and look at it from a universal precautions approach. And the, these are the universal precautions as suggested by the ASCO guidelines that we mentioned earlier. And the, they overlap a lot with the Ohio um, prescribing rules and probably with rules in other surrounding states. And you can kind of break them down into three broad categories. Screening patients for risk before you actually prescribe opioids, minimizing risk at the time of prescribing opioids, 
and then after you've prescribed monitoring response and responding to any harms that could come up. So we'll talk about some of these things. When you're assessing risk for your patients before prescribing, at a minimum, you want to assess for active substance abuse and some of the tools that you can use pretty quickly and that a lot of providers are familiar with are the CAGE, the CAGE aid, which has been adapted to include drug use, the four C's. You wanna assess personal and family history of substance abuse because that has been associated with misuse of prescribed opioids. You also wanna look at the current living situation. Do they have a caregiver at home, somebody who can help monitor when you're adjusting opioids or respond to an accidental overdose? Are there children in the home that they need to keep the opioids locked up from and keep them safe? Um, and then you want to assess for concurrent psychiatric conditions, things that um, may be comorbid, comorbid conditions that can complicate the use of opioids for your patient. And you want to document all of this in your note. Now, if you want to incorporate a more formal screening tool into your risk assessment, we have some listed on the slide here. I want to highlight that none of these have been validated for use in a cancer population to predict future opioid misuse. The ORT, or the Opioid Risk Tool, is a really common one that I think a lot of people are familiar with. It's very short and sweet, and it can be answered pretty quickly by um, the, the patient themselves. And there's even a revised opioid risk tool that omits the question about childhood sexual abuse. Some of these tools um, can be implemented before you prescribe. Some like the Calm can be used after you've prescribed. And then some like the PADT and the Dyer can actually kind of help track behaviors while patients are actively using opioids. And so you can screen them at every visit. Another important screening tool that we mentioned at the beginning of our talk today is the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. All 50 states and Washington, D.C. have prescription drug monitoring programs available. In the state of Ohio, we call it ORS. You do have to register for an individual account, and if you do, this actually pulls through into some of our electronic medical records. So for instance, at Ohio State, we have a look back at the previous 12 months of um, reporting in ORS, um, as long as you have that individual account. Now there are some limitations. Um, ORS reports all scheduled two through five prescriptions that are dispensed to the patient, but it's dependent on the pharmacy sending that information. It also reports gabapentin. Residential facilities like skilled nursing facilities or rehabs and office-based opioid use disorder treatment programs are not required to report to ORS, and so you may be missing some of that data for some of your patients. You are required to check it for at least the previous 12 months of prescribing prior to the first opioid or benzodiazepine prescription and then every 90 days thereafter. Another screening tool that you may want to implement for your patients is urine drug screening. And actually, in the Ohio ruling, it says that you should do this if patients screen as high risk when you're evaluating them. I want to emphasize that this is just a tool for screening patients at baseline to see if they are using any illicit substances and ongoing compliance monitoring to make sure that they are taking the substances that you're giving them. There are two main types of tests, immunoassay and confirmation. The immunoassay is the rapid test that just uses antibodies to detect a class of substances. It's very prone to false negatives and false positives. And so you never wanna make major medical decisions based only on immunoassay results. I wanna stress that if you're unsure of what you're seeing, you should always order confirmation. It may take a few more days, but it's worth it in the long run. 
Now, once you've made the decision to prescribe opioids, you may want to implement an opioid treatment agreement. And per Ohio law, it says that we need to do that at ADMED, but it might be a good practice just to do this for all of the patients in your clinic receiving opioids or other controlled substances, just so that everyone is treated fairly and there aren't any surprises once they get to that ADMED mark. Now, there's some evidence to support that these do decrease the misuse in patient populations, but there's no evidence to support that they actually reduce tangible harms like overdose or diversion. But there are some obvious benefits to using treatment agreements. You can sit down with the patient and really outline exactly what the risks and benefits of opioid use are and um, what they can expect from outcomes of, of, of treatment. If you don't have an opioid treatment agreement currently in your practice, there is a template available on the State Medical Board of Ohio website. Also, when you're prescribing opioids, there are lots of different tips that I wanted to give you um, based on their pharmacology and actually the prescribing portion just to make sure that we're prescribing them safely for the patients. When you're initiating opioids, you're almost always choosing short-acting opioids to start. They're great because they have a quick onset, they peak within a couple of hours, but they only last about four hours in most patients. So something I wanted to emphasize is sometimes I see prescriptions written in a way that limits the amount of opioid that the patient can take in, in a day, but it doesn't really honor the true duration of action of the medication. So in the examples that I have at the bottom of the slide here, on the left, you'll see that we have hydromorphone two milligram tablets, and our intention is to limit the patient to three tablets per day. But writing it as take one tablet every eight hours as needed for pain means that if the pain exceeds the duration of that four hour period, and that medication wears off, the patient may still be in pain at that four hour mark and unable to repeat a dose for four more hours. So a more appropriate way to do that would be the example on the right, um, the hydromorphone two milligram tablet, take one every four hours as needed for pain, but only take a max of three tablets per day. So you wanna educate your patient, You know, we don't expect you to use this every four hours, but if it's safe to repeat at the end of that duration interval if you do still have lingering pain. Now, with long-acting opioids, it might be rare that you're initiating these in your patients in a primary care setting, um, but you may, you may be taking over prescribing some of these agents um, for your patients, especially if they're still on them as they have come through their cancer treatments. I wanna emphasize that they are only approved for severe persistent pain in patients who are opioid tolerant. The exception to that is actually the buprenorphine patch, and I'm gonna talk about that a little bit later. But as for the other medications on this slide, like the fentanyl patches and the 12 or 24 hour long acting pills, um, those are only for opioid tolerant patients. And that definition by the FDA is taking 60 morphine equivalent dose daily for seven days or longer. Um, you wanna educate your patients that these have a slower onset of action, they peak a lot later than their short acting counterparts. And so patients um, often don't want to say, quote unquote, feel these kicking in, but that I think that's a good expectation to set with them. Another thing is if they're initiated on, say, a fentanyl patch, you want to educate that it's not going to work right away. It takes several hours to kick in and then a couple days to reach steady state. You want to make sure that you use extra caution in patients who are at risk for adverse events from taking long-acting opioids as well, such as those with a history of substance use disorder or tenuous respiratory issues. On this next slide, I've outlined some 
tips on prescribing opioids safely for patients with organ dysfunction. Now, if you took 10 pain management specialists and put us all in a room, we could probably debate this for a couple of hours of which medications go where. But just in general, these medications are a little bit safer for renal or liver insufficiency. And I wanna say they're not safe by any means. You still wanna use them cautiously. Start low and go slow with your dosing. But these are some of our preferred agents. I do wanna mention that even though I have methadone on these slides, I don't recommend prescribing methadone unless you are an experienced pain management um, prescriber. And then there are a couple of medications that we tend to avoid um, just because of poor efficacy or safety and toxicity concerns in organ dysfunction or just lack of um, utility in general for cancer-related pain. All right, the last piece to our universal precautions is monitoring our patients after we've prescribed and responding to any potential harms. So as Satch mentioned earlier, we really wanna set some objective goals for opioid use and reassess those frequently. Focus on function and not the numerical pain score. Research and experience has shown us that numerical pain scores are not a great way to track progress with opioid use. Think about SMART goals. Think about setting measurable and time-bound goals with your patients to really evaluate if the opioids are doing what you want them to do. You wanna monitor for adverse effects always as you're using opioids. And I wanna emphasize here prescribing proper laxatives, not docusate alone. So docusate is a stool softener. We know that opioids slow down gut motility. So if you have mush and not enough push, you're not gonna have good results. So I recommend stimulant laxatives um, such as Senna or Bisacodyl. And the osmotic laxatives such as Miralax are also approved for that use. And then some potential long-term effects that we really need to keep an eye on. Um, opioids can contribute to central sleep apnea. They can cause hypogonadism, which can lead to other issues such as osteoporosis and increasing risk of fractures. And then also substance use disorder. We should be screening for that in our patients who are using opioids routinely. All right, I wanna to return to case number one. So remember this was a patient who has survived breast cancer, has intersecting chronic pain and cancer-related pain after her surgery and lingering lymphedema. And it's really interfering with her ability to participate in physical therapy to help the lymphedema. Other therapies have been maximized and the patient has noted that transdermal buprenorphine patches have really worked for all of her pain conditions, and she's interested in continuing those. Although it's not required, you wanna maybe consider doing some of these universal precautions before you take over prescribing. You could implement a treatment agreement, ask about the, sub the history of substance use disorder. You did do a urine drug screen on your patient and it shows no illicit substances, so that's great. I do wanna point out that the buprenorphine transdermal patches are a very low dose and they often don't show up on immunoassay urine drug screens. And so if it comes back negative for opioids, that doesn't necessarily point to non-compliance for your patient. And then lastly, you're gonna check ORs. I wanna highlight buprenorphine just a little bit more here because you're probably seeing it more often and we're definitely using it more in our practice as well. But even though it is a partial mu opioid agonist, we still get great analgesia with buprenorphine, especially in the low dose products that are approved just for pain management. That would be the transdermal patches and the buccal films. 
we have a lower risk of respiratory depression with buprenorphine. Um, it's actually been shown that that risk is low to almost non-existent, especially with the lower dosage forms that we use for, for pain. We also see better tolerability as compared to the full agonists. Because of that kappa receptor antagonist activity, we get less sedation, less euphoria. We even see less GI adverse effects and less endocrine effects in the long run. It is safe in renal insufficiency and in mild to moderate liver disease. There is a warning on buprenorphine not to use in severe hepatic impairment. However, um, I think that a lot of us still would reach for this agent, especially in the low doses that we use for pain management, um, because it still could be considered quite safe. Now the transdermal patches, as I mentioned, can actually be initiated in opioid naive patients. A buprenorphine five microgram per hour transdermal patch delivers about 12 MED over an entire 24 hour period. That's actually even less than taking two oxycodone five milligram tablets in a 24 hour period. And so that is safe to initiate in opioid naive patients. All right, so back to our case number one. So our patient is using a 10 microgram per hour transdermal buprenorphine patch already, and it was just recently titrated. That's delivering about 24 MED. And so we're not anywhere close to our MED thresholds as outlined in the state of Ohio rules. But you've decided to take over prescribing and you're gonna follow up in two months. Now, the, the success measure that you have agreed upon with this patient is that she's going to be able to participate in PT and OT sessions at least twice a week by using this medication to treat pain. You've prescribed Senna for her to take two tablets at nighttime with instructions to increase to twice per day if needed, and you've educated her about safe opioid use and storage and disposal as well. All right, I'm gonna hand it back over to Satch to finish up with case two. Thank you very much. So, as you remember in case two, we talked about a patient with persistent pain related to cancer and cancer treatment who comes to you now on chronic opioid therapy. His opioid dose has been unchanged for over a year. And the question for you is, will you continue his opioid treatment? What else can you do for him? So when you think about chronic pain and opioids, the CDC recommends that if a patient has chronic pain and is not currently on opioids, consider avoiding opioid therapy, or at least look for non-opioid alternatives to help manage that pain. But what about if a patient is currently receiving opioid therapy, as you might see in patients who are survivors of cancer? In that case, the recommendation is to develop an individualized treatment plan. Do not abruptly taper or discontinue the current opioid treatment. That can cause more harm than benefit. And if you see evidence of an opioid use disorder, well, there's a great medication for that. And as long as you have a DEA license, you can prescribe Suboxone otherwise known as buprenorphine naloxone, um, to treat opioid use disorder, it can also help with pain. When thinking about um, guidance for continuing opioid therapy, if the benefits outweigh the risks of, opioid, of continuing opioid therapy, you can still optimize non-opioid therapies while continuing opioid therapy. For this patient, for example, engaging in physical therapy, or maybe considering low-dose NSAIDs or acetaminophen. Collaborate with patients who agree to taper their dose. If tapering, taper slowly enough to minimize withdrawal symptoms. If you put a patient who's otherwise doing well on opioids into withdrawal, they're not gonna to wanna to collaborate in tapering further. 
So individualize the pace of tapering. And unless there are signs of life-threatening side effects, confusion, sedation, slurred speech, opioid therapy again should not be discontinued abruptly or rapidly. How fast to taper? Sort of depends. Reevaluate the necessity of opioids regularly. Consider about a 10 to 20% reduction of the total daily opioid dose at a time. Um, no more than that to avoid opioid withdrawal. For patients with no signs of inappropriate opioid use, no clear side effects from opioid, from opioid use, a slow taper, months or even years, may be most appropriate if this engages patients and gives them time to engage in other um, treatments that might help them manage their pain and live, live well with pain. And consider a specialist referral to help patients get down to the lowest tolerated opioid dose. That specialist, that specialist might um, be able to integrate other modalities and then help you decide, help you and the patient determine what's the lowest dose, perhaps no opioids, perhaps a low dose of opioids, which are most appropriate for then chronic therapy. Returning to case two, a universal precautions approach is taken. There's an open discussion about opioid use with this patient. He acknowledges his pain is very minimal right now and that perhaps he can come down on the oxycodone dose. So we reduce it to 10 milligrams from 15 milligrams three times per day with continuation of the long-acting morphine. Some take-home points for today. The approach to treating cancer-related pain depends on the patient's cancer trajectory and definitely um, can change once they're in long-term cancer survivorship. Use a universal precautions approach to opioid prescribing. And opioid tapering in long-term cancer survivors involves a multimodal approach and is individualized to the patient. Thank you both so much. That was wonderful. And it was really helpful to hear, um, you know, that it, there is a way to help these patients. Um, and, and the differences between treating the pain when they have cancer and when they're now a cancer survivor. So some questions for you. First, Satch, now, do you see, do you have a, um, you mentioned that you see a higher rate of pain in patients with lower socioeconomic background. Do you have an idea why that would be? There are some studies that show that. So a few things I'd, I would mention. One, um, pain is often discounted in patients with, um, who are in so lower socioeconomic backgrounds or, mm -hmm. or in minority populations. So their pain not, might not be treated as well, which is why they might have more pain. Mm -hmm. I think also when we think about the total, the total um, pain concept, mm -hmm. um, other stressors in life can also manifest in pain. Mm. And it can be helpful to think about that as well when treating the pain. Okay, that's that is helpful. Now, um, you know, it's great to hear there are many other non-pharmacologic options like CBT, acupuncture, and massage. Now, are those typically covered by insurance? Unfortunately, it really depends on a patient's insurance. And to go back to your first your <coughs> first point, um, mm -hmm. some patients' insurances might not approve some of these treatments. Mm -hmm. But I think it's worth looking into because they can be very effective with very low side effects mm -hmm. um, for each patient. Okay. Now, Maureen, if we look at case two where the patient is on that high dose of opioids and they're doing really well on their regimen, um, how do you convince them to taper? They might be really happy with their current um, treatment, so, you know, um, and they might have a lot of anxiety related to pulling that back. Yeah, that's a great question, Jingjing. Jing. So, 
Um, I think it's important to educate patients that stopping opioids or decreasing opioids, we're not, we're not trying to pull the rug out from under them. We're not mm -hmm. trying to leave them their pain untreated. We do have evidence to show that decreasing opioid doses and even sometimes working toward lowering the dose or coming off completely can have health benefits. People mm -hmm. can feel better. We show that coming off of opioids, patients' pain may be unchanged or even sometimes better in the long run. Mm -hmm. And so I think you really just need to talk to the patient and involve a shared decision-making model to decide when they're ready to maybe take that step and decrease the dose. And it might be a good idea to do that when pain is well controlled, when all their other other disease states are stable and they're feeling good and they're feeling ready to take that first step. Perfect. That's really helpful. Um, now, Satch, what, what specialist can help with opioid tapering if uh, the primary care doctor reaches kind of a, a point where they're really needing assistance? So I think there are pain specialists out there who can help with opioid tapering and help think about non-opioid approaches to um, helping with pain. Mm -hmm. I think a challenge is the chronic opioid prescribing, um, uh, who will prescribe that long term. Mm -hmm. But I think working with a pain specialist to help get the patient down to the lowest effective dose is a great option. Okay. Now, um, and Maureen, I think this, since you were talking more about case one, this um, for you, the patient on a buprenorphine product, I mean, that, as you mentioned, is a safer product. Um, but in the past, I've noticed that cost can be a barrier. Is that still the case? Or is that, are we seeing more insurances cover it or um, availability, et cetera? Yeah, so the, the low dose dosage forms of buprenorphine, like the transdermal patches and the buccal films that are only approved for pain management, um, we're seeing payers start to um, pay for those more. We're, start, we're seeing formularies start to shift toward actually preferring buprenorphine products for some of their patients because we have seen some benefits for analgesia as well as side effects for the patients. And so I think that, you know, Prior authorizations are needed for a lot of long-acting opioids, but I wouldn't mm -hmm. let that be a complete barrier. If you can work th with the insurance and get that covered, um, we have seen more, more payers picking that up. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, uh, how would you switch somebody from a full agonist to buprenorphine? Oh, that's a great question. Is that, uh, I mean, <laughs> that you know, is a loaded, let me know if that's... I could give a whole separate yeah. talk on just <laughs> that topic. <laughs> yeah, so um, patients who are using full agonist opioids, um, the, the concern there is that if their full agonist tolerance is high, mm -hmm. that if you introduce buprenorphine, you could potentially put them into withdrawal. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. when we're talking about patients who are using... Um, lower doses of full agonist opioids, we have found that when we switch over to low dose buprenorphine products, the risk of withdrawal is minimal, mm -hmm. as long as we're taking into account our morphine equivalent dosing and making mm -hmm. sure that we're not putting the patient into withdrawal just because we underdosed them during that transition. Okay. Um, and so we've done that with some success. I do recommend consulting a pain specialist or a palliative specialist if you want to do that. Okay, perfect. Now, Satch, marijuana is legal in more and more areas now and also just very widely available. How do you approach somebody who is using marijuana or you know, screens positive for THC on their drug screen? That's a great question. So. Marijuana is a CNS depressant, mm -hmm. and so there are risks with combining a, multiple CNS depressants such as opioids, muscle relaxants, THC, cannabis, for example. Mm -hmm. And so if a patient is using cannabis, the first thing I look for is encouraging them strongly to use legalized um, products. Mm -hmm. The second thing is if they're using cannabis and they find that it is helping with their pain, 
Well, that's great. Can we lower some of the other medications that they're using? For example, the opioids mm -hmm. um, to help make it safer. And then, of course, advising them uh, not to drive while on these medications. Okay. Um, Satch, do you have a different approach for patients who have a substance use disorder? Absolutely. So if a patient has a substance use disorder, um, Suboxone is a first-line treatment for um, treating both the substance use disorder and can actually help with their pain as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you have concerns for a patient maybe having a substance use disorder, um, collaborating with an addiction medicine specialist is a great approach. Fantastic. Well, that is um, wonderful. Thank you both so much for coming on the program and sharing your expertise. Um, for um, our viewers, we're going to finish up with a final key point from each of you. So, Satch? Thank you. Uh, my final key point would be when managing patients um, who have chronic pain from their cancer, this is a great opportunity to involve other specialists on other modalities of uh, pain control that may not have been available to these patients while they're in the midst of their cancer treatment. And Maureen? So my final key point is that you may find yourself as a primary care provider in a situation where you do need to take over prescribing opioids for, for patients with cancer because we are, they are surviving longer and they may have pain into their survivorship. There are existing frameworks to help pre prescribe those medications safely for the patient. So as long as you're taking a universal precautions approach and reevaluating at key checkpoints in order to see if you can taper the dose down to the lowest effective dose, I think that there are ways to help our patients transition and have pain management in survivorship as well. Thank you for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week with my guest, Dr. Mira Menon, to learn about emotional support animals. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.